So we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, surprise, surprise, on uh, the Sunday before Christmas. So Luke chapter 2, you can turn there with me. Uh, we're in a series uh, on the gospel of Luke, and I've told you over the past several weeks, I just want to keep this in front of you, and that is that Luke is speaking to a guy named Theophilus, and he's telling Theophilus, he wants to inform him about all the things that he told him about, and so he's kind of bringing him up to speed. And perhaps Luke had told him all about the Old Testament prophecies and, and explained why there had to be a Savior that comes, and now he's telling the other end of the story and just kind of putting everything in order here, and so that's, that's what he's doing. So he's speaking to a guy who's a man of his time. He's a guy who's probably a high-up official, and he is a guy who is... Uh, he, may, he may be a believer, he may not be a believer, we don't really know where he's at, but he's explaining some things to him, and I think what's important about that is that we understand that Luke believes that Theophilus, either new believer or not believer, needs to hear the full story, the full story of the supernatural, miraculous uh, work that God is doing here to bring about salvation. And so it's, it's an incredible story in, in that sense because at Christmas time, we're not just talking about a baby that has been born. We're talking about something supernatural that God is doing. And again, we're continuing with that theme. And so if you look with me in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we'll go through verse 21, and we'll go from there. It says, uh, it says this, chapter 2, verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. <clears throat> and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it, has been, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, this is a very common story. Uh, if you've been uh, in church at all, even uh, obviously just for, for Christmas, 
Uh, you probably have heard this story. Uh, it's very easy to just kind of read through it and not really understand what it's saying or, and just, just think, oh, it's just the, the Christmas story. But I think there's really some great stuff in here for us to mine out and to actually see. The first thing that I see in this passage is the reality that there is this incredible praise. Heaven is praising for what is happening. If you see in verse uh, 13, there's a heavenly host praising God, and they're saying glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And then you look a little bit further in verse 17, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So they come to the manger, these shepherds, they come and they, they, they tell them, this is what we just saw. And so they're proclaiming the goodness of what they had seen in verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at uh, what the shepherds told them. They're, I mean, they're in amazement. And then Mary treasures up these things. She kind of privately is mulling over these things, pondering them uh, in their heart. And then the shepherds return, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. There's this kind of relentless praise that goes along with the Christmas story. The Christmas story is often told in a way that, uh, that causes us to just kind of, you know, just say, yeah, I've heard that before, perhaps if you've been in church for some time. Perhaps you know a little bit about the Christmas story, and you know that there's this idea of this baby Jesus having, having been born. You've seen the nativity scenes and so forth. But I think what my problem is, is that I don't get the praise piece out of it sometimes. I don't understand the, the, the reality of this praise because of this, and it's, it's because it has just become so commonplace for me. It's be so, become so commonplace but others of us don't necessarily really even understand uh, what's happening here and why this is such great news that should bring us joy. Many of us don't even understand that we don't see the goodness that is in here. Well, why is there goodness in here? Look at the top of the passage with me in verse 1 as it's talking about Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus is this amazing, amazing Caesar who, uh, what really, uh, what many of the scholars say about him is that one of the main things about his rule and his reign was that he brought peace to Rome. He brought peace to Rome. In fact, I was reading one story. I wasn't able to verify it completely, but it goes something like this, and that is that they had some kind of war office, that the doors were shut for 30 years, and they did not experience war for something like that for decades. And so this is a guy who brought peace Later on in his reign, he was called uh, a savior and even uh, became, was called a son of God. He was kind of deified in a sense. So he's called a savior. He's called the son of God. He is somebody who supposedly has brought peace. So we have this Caesar Augustus. Now think about this. Luke is telling Theophilus that this was in the days of Caesar Augustus. Now we don't know if Luke is drawing a contrast between Caesar Augustus and Jesus. We're not sure. Luke doesn't point that out. But it's true that this is who he was. And so what is Caesar doing? Caesar says, everyone has got to go be registered. And this registration really had to do with taxes. It had to do with the idea of go back to your hometown, go back to your clan, go back to where you have property, and you need to register so that you can pay your taxes. And so this is a guy who's ruled with an iron fist. He has the, uh, the peace that has been established uh, uh, much like Hitler might establish peace. 
by killing everyone who disagrees with him. Something along those lines. So here we have this brutal dictator of peace. Verse 2 says that this was when the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So Luke is putting it in a time and place. Now there's some discussion about exactly how this happened. Some of our history doesn't line up with exactly what uh, Luke is saying here. It's unclear exactly how that goes. Different scholars have different opinions as to why it says that and how. We're not sure. This is an ancient document, and so we're not entirely sure exactly what that is. But what Luke is doing is he's, he's locating it in a time and place. Like, this happened. This was an event. It took place during this guy's reign, and this is what happened here. And he said, all of them went to be registered, each to his own hometown. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, verse 4, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the, of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. <clears throat> and so what is, what is Luke doing? Luke is saying here, he's saying, there's this Caesar, and he has uh, made this rule, this edict, and he has forced everyone to go back to their hometown. And uh, it's almost seemingly by happenstance, almost seemingly by happenstance, that Mary and Joseph end up in the town of which it has been prophesied where the Messiah would be born. Micah 5, verse 2, which says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who, uh, who, are, you, uh, who, are, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So this is a prophecy that perhaps Luke had already told Theophilus about. There's this, there's this prophecy, Theo, of where the Messiah is going to be born. And this guy Jesus was born there. Luke perhaps is going back and giving more detail. And he's saying, look at the providence of God happenstance meets providence as God's plan is unfolded seemingly through these disparate means. And so Luke is showing the sovereignty of God, I think, on some level here. He's showing him exactly what's happening. He, he's saying God has used this crazy set of circumstances to put this couple, who this, they're not married yet. you got Joseph and Mary. And they live in Nazareth. Why would they ever go to Bethlehem? Well, it's because that has been required of them by this ruler. And so it says, she gave her, and, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now look at the compare and contrast here. Between here, here you have this massive ruler, you have the governor, you have these people who are high ups, and you look at them as putty in the hand of God. And you look who God is using. God is using them to accomplish his means. But then he's also using the lowliest people. He's using this poor carpenter, Joseph. And he's using this pregnant, single mother, teenage mother, to accomplish his purposes. God does whatever he wants. And there's a compare and contrast that's going on here between the rich and powerful and the poor and powerless. God is showing us something here. He's showing that he does whatever he wants, whenever he wants. There's also another comparison here between a Caesar, uh, Caesar who's a man who would become God, according to Kent Hughes, and then the true God who had become man. 
You have these, this contrast between this guy who becomes this ruler and he kind of becomes God in the eyes of his people. But then you also have this God who determines to become man. It's a beautiful story. Now, why, why do we not necessarily see the beauty of the story? Well, perhaps maybe you've heard it, I, I dare say, too many times, but you've heard it in a similar vein all of the time. Let me just tell you that uh, very often we see stories that mean something to us and we don't understand why they necessarily mean something to us. I've been watching Undercover Boss with my kids uh, lately. So we, we kind of went through all the shark tanks or a, a lot of them and now we're on to un Undercover Boss. And so we're, we're watching Undercover Boss and normally if you haven't seen the show this is what happens uh, you know some boss who has a business that probably needs some more advertisement decides to go on to tv and so he or she dresses up you know ridiculously and says that they're i don't know why no one has gets the idea of what's happening here because this happens in every show where he's going on this you know going back into his business to uh, act like he is going to you know he's a, a contestant in a in a, in a contest uh, that is competing for $250,000 to start his own restaurant, you know, something along those lines. And so here is this guy, and he dresses up, and he kind of decides to try to look like the people who work for him or for her, and they get in there and they begin to do work. And they're obviously pretty bad at it uh, most of the time because they haven't, you know, been on the factory floor or been back there cooking or anything like that for some time. Perhaps they never have. They just own this business. And so here's this person who comes down to the level of their employees who otherwise is making millions and millions of dollars, and they condescend, they come down, and they work with their employees. And it's this really touching thing. By the time you get to the end of it, what you're, what you're looking for is you're looking for who is the person that this employer, this business owner, is really going to bless? Who is this person that this uh, employer is very much going to bless? And it's kind of a tearjerker because you get to the end and, and you think to yourself, man, this person is so deserving of being blessed. You, I, I don't know where they find these people that have these, these really awful stories like, you know, like the, they have a parent that's in the hospital and they can't take care of them and they're going to be out on the street or this guy's living on a couch and he's just there so he can be with his daughter and this person, you know, has no future or no hope or whatever and then this, this boss kind of changes everything and it is such a tearjerker at the end. And why is that? It's because of this because what we just read right there is the original gangster, if you will. It, it is the, the original story. Jesus is the OG. Jesus is the one who originally comes down and he uh, takes on flesh. He is the God who becomes man. And he comes down and this is the moment. This is, this is the time when this takes place. And it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing when you watch that, uh, that show, Undercover Boss, and they begin to realize, man, I've always wanted to meet the owner of the company. I've always wanted to have a conversation with I've had aspirations to start my own franchise and all this stuff, and I finally get an audience with this guy. Like, that's what's happening right here. That's what's taking place, is that Jesus comes down as God, and he becomes man. And it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. It says in verse 8, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around him, them, and they were filled with great fear. I mean, that, why does that always happen? Like whenever an angel or Jesus kind of pops in somewhere, they always have to be like, hey, hey it's, it's, everything, everything's okay. You're right. You're right. I think it's just God's little joke. He's just jacking with people. He's just like, he's just like you know, this is so funny. It never gets old. Like, let's just keep doing it. It always works. It always works. And so here are these shepherds. Now, who are shepherds? And we think about shepherds as uh, being, uh, you know, uh, decent-looking human beings. Uh, perhaps they look a little bit like hipsters. They got a, they got a beard, um, except for the long dresses that they wear and, the, you know, the little crook staff and, and stuff like that. And we think about them in a nativity scene or things like that, but we've kind of gotten used to this idea that these shepherds are these uh, hard-working blue-collar guys uh, who are out, you know, like making a way. Maybe they're like cattle ranchers. They're just kind of like, they don't care what anybody thinks or what have you. But here we have these shepherds. Now, shepherds in, in their day uh, were people who were not very highly thought of. They are people who are, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen Christmas Vacation, but they're a little bit like Cousin Eddie, all right? If you're thinking of somebody in a bathroom, think about Cousin Eddie. Co Cousin Eddie is this guy, he's just, he is not cool. He is not cool. He kind of he smells probably. His uh, you know, RV smells, that's for sure. You know, all, all that stuff. But here we have these shepherds. They're not really well thought of in their society. They're blue-collar guys who are doing the lowest of the low work. They've been ste stepping in some type of manure for most of the day. And here we have something that happens that is absolutely astounding. And the reason why it's astounding is, is because of this. Why does God reveal himself to these lowly shepherds, these Cousin Eddie types, if you will, who are just out on the plain and they're taking care of these sheep? Why does God come and talk to the least responsible people, to the people who are least likely to be believed, who are considered at times to be thieves? They're, they're considered to be people who are uh, the least of society. Well, here we have God's theme that continues to come out. As we see Joseph, a lowly carpenter, we see Mary, a pregnant teenage mother, we see people who are poor and who are powerless, and once again, we have this uh, group of people, these shepherds, who are the same way. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, what people are we talking about? We're talking about the people of Israel. Why is it good news for them? Because God has been saying, he's been announcing over and over again, hey, I'm going to send a Savior. I'm going to send the Messiah. I'm going to send the one who's going to save you. And they think, okay, political, social uh, peace is coming upon us. That's what they're thinking, but that's not exactly what they're getting, not yet anyway. But what, he's, what, what, the angels are, what the angel is saying is, he's saying, fear not, for behold, I'm bringing you. And who's, who is you? He's talking to Israel, but he's also saying to these lowly shepherds, he's saying, I'm coming to you, the least deserving people in our society today, I am coming to you to bring you good news. That is gospel. I'm coming to bring you gospel. This good news that will lead to great joy 
It's going to be, uh, it's going to bring great joy. It's going to be for all the people. And then he says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So he's saying, for unto you is born this day. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now think about that for a second. If you're not excited about it, if we're, if we're just mustering up the, uh, the excitement, if we're just trying to force ourselves into praise for the Savior, if we're trying to really white-knuckle it in, into this, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we really believe that this Savior is for us? is for me. Do I believe that the Savior is unto me? Is this good news to me that the Savior has condescended, that the incarnation has taken place? Incarnation is a big word for saying that God became man. He took on flesh. Incarnate, he took on meat. He took on flesh. Is it for me? Do I experience it in that way? Do I do I feel it? Do I sense it? Do I see the fact that he is, in this city of David, a savior? Is, do I see him as my deliverer from my enemies? Do I see him as the one who is here to deliver me from my enemies? To deliver me from the enemy of my soul? To deliver me from what ails me, in a sense, in my life? Do, do I see him as my savior? Do I see him as my Christ, which is my Messiah? I see him as my anointed one, the, the one who is from God, who has been empowered by God, who is God. He is the anointed one who's been prophesied for ages and he is here. He's my Savior. He's my anointed one. And he is my Lord. So he possesses the sovereign power to save me. He has absolute power and control over the ability to save me and to make me right with God. Can, can I praise this God? We just got done singing, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. Can I praise God for this act? Can I praise because the Savior has come, who is Christ the Lord? Well, oftentimes we can't. And why is it? Look at verse 13. And then there was this with the angel was a multitude of heavenly hosts. Stop for just a second. A multitude is, is not just like, there was a pretty good choir out there. Like, that was, that was all right. Yeah, I mean, they had enough voices. Kind of got it done. No, this is, this is an amazing choir, like, without number. One commentator said, I wonder if all of the angels came down that day. They're like, I ain't, I ain't staying up top. 
you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going down below. Because the angels have been longing to see these things. It says in Scripture, they long to see this stuff. They want to be a part of it. They're, they've been sitting there just going, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, like it's Christmas, uh, Christmas Eve, like I can't wait, I can't wait, can't wait. And here they are, they're saying, I can't wait, I can't wait, like he's about to do it. We've been working on this, we've been planning this. In fact, it's not we, it's just, just God's been planning this. They've just been hearing about it for a while. Like, I'm tired of hearing it, tired of hearing it. Let's just go down and do this thing. And so they go down and they're like announcing the Savior of the world. The Savior of the universe. Like, what angel would there be left in heaven? They came down, and there was a multitude, and there were millions, and in fact, probably trillions, that enveloped the sky and sang this song, which is an amazing song, which says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And they were singing this, and they're singing this. I don't know if there's other verses or choruses, like, glory, 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 glory to God of the highest and on earth. You know, I don't know what the song was like, but that's, that was a verse out of it. And they were excited to sing it, and it was amazing. And these shepherds, who are basically, like I said, the Cousin Eddie types, are sitting there just going, dude, that was amazing. Oh, my gosh. And they're experiencing this on a level that most of us have not experienced before. They're experiencing this because they're hearing the truth of who God is. And the truth is this, that glory to God in the highest is essentially saying that we are praising God in the highest possible way. There's no, other, there's no other greater level of praise that we can give him than, we, than, than to glorify him in the highest possible way. So they're glorifying him in the highest possible way. And then it says, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, you might remember from... Days past, you might have heard a different phrase there, which would say, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Now, that is a mistranslation of the original language, the Greek, that this was written in. Because that basically says, it says that Jesus is bringing peace and it's goodwill toward all men. So, there, there is in this idea... Universal peace and universal salvation. There's a universality of what, of what is being sung here. But the pinnacle of what they're sing, singing is not that he's going to bring immediate peace. In fact, he says later, I didn't come to bring peace. What are you talking about? And it's not to bring goodwill to just everyone, but to a specific group of people. Now, he says, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's an accurate translation of what, of what is said there, of what the angels sing. So what does it mean? Well, oftentimes when we, when we think about Jesus and we think about his, his birth, 
we think about peace, we talk about peace. You see it in, uh, you see it in society and advertisements and all over the place. But the reality is that as you look at our world, is it becoming more peaceful? I mean, we, I, I think you've heard me preach enough if you've been here long enough. Like, like we could just go down the line and just talk about how not peaceful it is. There's massive wars that are taking place. There's massive, massive hatred between people groups. There's massive division in our country. There's massive division in the family unit. There's massive, there, is, there is no peace. And so to say that like Jesus is, was supposedly going to bring peace to everybody and to everything, that he was going to bring social peace and political peace and international peace, to say that Jesus was, uh, came to do that is just frankly wrong. Like that didn't happen. And so if that's what you think, then you can just write off Jesus completely. But that is not what is being announced here. What's being announced here is a different kind of peace, a different level of peace. It's a kind of peace that essentially we begin to be able to have are brought into through an act of God. It is, it is a peace that can only come between us and God, not by our initiative, but by His initiative. So here's the thing. If you're not feeling the peace, if you're not feeling the praise, if you're not feeling the worship, meaning if you can't sing glory to God in the highest, if you can't praise Him for what He's done, then it's an indicator that you may be at war, just like the rest of this world. You may be at war. You may be at war with the idea of God. You might be at war with God himself, even though you've told yourself, I'm not at war with God. I have relationship with God. But the question is, do you obey him? Have you followed him? Do you walk with him? Because many, many, many people in America believe that they're at peace with God. And they believe the, Christ, uh, the, the Christmas message that Jesus has brought peace. And yet they remain at war with God. What is so great about what Jesus is doing here? What is so great about this? You think about Undercover Boss for a second. An Undercover Boss, what, what you're looking for, and what I, I'm always kind of astounded by, is that most of the time, there's always someone, there's always somebody who is really, really, really deserving. I don't know if the producers probably go interview the, you know, all of their employees, and they find somebody who's got a crazy story. They find something that they really need. They find, and then they do this story with it. I don't know what it is, but what you're looking for an undercover boss is you're looking to find someone who really deserves to be helped. Someone who really, really, really deserves to be helped. 
And then it brings about this great joy when you see, oh, they deserve to be helped. Here's the thing about this, this situation. It's different with God. Yes, Jesus comes down in the same way a boss would. Yes, Jesus takes on flesh in, this, in a similar way to a boss, like remaking their physical structures, cutting their hair, changing their teeth, whatever it is. It's similar in that respect. But Jesus comes not to people who are deserving, but he comes to people who are completely destitute, people, people who are completely undeserving. And not just people who are undeserving. Jesus comes to people who are at war with him. Who are at war with God. The first thing that must take place in order for you to be able to praise, in order for you to be able to say glory to God in the highest possible way to this Jesus person, what must happen first is that you must realize that you are not a friend of God. You're not somebody who likes Jesus. You're not somebody who thinks that you're in the right place. You're a person who is currently at war with God. You're not just undeserving. You're deserving of death. You're deserving of nothing. And the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, has been sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting for their redemption. And it finally comes... And this redemption is going to spill out to the whole world. And what's going to spill out is this. is not that everybody is saved. And not that uh, peace is going to reign right here and right now. But that God has poured out his peace. He has unilaterally saved some of those that he has chosen. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. What they are singing about, what they are glorying in, is that God has chosen to show his favor, his unmerited favor to some. He has chosen to show his unmerited favor by doing this. By bringing peace to people who are currently at war. By bringing peace into the relationship that they have with God, with himself. God is the one who does this. And this is the enactment. This is the beginning of it. This is, it's not the pinnacle quite yet. The pinnacle is the cross, of course. But it is the beginning of the gospel story being unfolded, the plan, the rescue plan with the Savior that is being unfolded here. And so they, they praise, they sing. And it says in verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Two things take place. They acknowledge the reality that an event has happened, so they believe. They believe in faith. And the second thing that they believe is this, is that it's not just something that happened. It's not just something, a historical event, but it is from God. It is from God. See, who is Jesus to you? 
You can't sing his praise. You can't worship him in the way that Luke is telling us to until you see that you're at war with God in need of peace and that he unilaterally has blessed you with his peace and that this is from God, that God is the one who, in essence, imposes this, imposes his will on you and saves you through no desire of your own. He makes you willing to desire him. Do you desire him? It's because God has done this. It is an act of God. God has made it known to you in the same way that he burst onto the scene through the angel and the angels. He burst onto the scene and sings loudly and tells them the truth. That's where I was. That's where you were. I was essentially a lost, lowly shepherd in need of God's grace. And God showed his immeasurable grace to me. His kindness to me. And as a result, he brings peace. It says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The shepherds show faith by acknowledging that this event has taken place. They believe and they acknowledge this, that this is from God. And as a result, they experience the peace of God through Christmas. Peace may not come in the form of relational peace in your home this Christmas. It may not come in the form of financial stability. It may not come in the form of international peace. It probably won't. Peace comes to us in this way, that our relationship with God is secure, that he is the one who has done it. He's the one who's enacted it. And the question is, can you praise him for that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the peace that you've brought to us. Lord, I think I, I forget. I don't see it. I don't understand it. But Lord, I'm asking for greater understanding for myself. And Lord, if, Lord, for my friends here in this room, Lord, may we see that you have brought a peace that we could never bring ourselves, that you have enacted a peace that we could not have made available to us. So Lord, thank you so much for that reality. Thank you for, for what you've done. Lord, may we be able to leave here today singing your praise. Lord, may we think about the fact that without you having brought peace, we are at war with you. Lord, may we worship you because of this. It's in your name we pray. Amen.